Hello, and welcome back to The Corporate Casket, a bi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We will discuss any and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and businesses that have a lot to hide. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Lisa Frank. You might remember those obscenely glittery and adorable unicorn stickers from like middle school, elementary school, high school. They were huge in the 90s. And though I was never super obsessed with Lisa Frank, I think most people recognize the logo or know what I'm talking about the second you see any of the styles. Well, pretty recently, I learned a bit about the rise and fall of Lisa Frank. Jezebel has a fantastic article on it, as well as quite a few other sources I'll be getting into today that shed a lot of light on this very colorful company. Although Lisa Frank was a bad business at one time or once fit into this weekly corporate casket standard, we've got a lot of that going on here. It's not the way you think. And this story was one that I genuinely found interesting and a little different from the other messy companies we're used to here. Now, before we get into what went wrong, let's start with who Lisa Frank is and the history of her company itself. In a 2015 article with Carly Mark, Lisa Frank talked about her childhood, the start of her company and its growth. Lisa is known for being elusive and rarely granting interviews. So this one, as well as a lengthy article from the Arizona Daily Star were particularly valuable in this research. Lisa Frank is from Detroit where she attended Cranbrook Kingswood High School. She said that back when she attended, Kingswood was an all girls school and they had real people teaching accomplished artists. Her father was in the automotive industry and along with her grandfather ran DAB, Detroit Aluminum and Brass. Lisa stated that she grew up like his little sidekick in a business family. So despite having a passion for art, Lisa had a knack for business too. Even in early years, Lisa did find success. She sold $3,000 worth of her art at her senior show. She transitioned from abstract art into commercial art by going to Native American reservations, Lisa told Carly. In college, I had to support myself. So in the beginning, I went to reservations. I would sell their art and jewelry. I still have a bit of Native American art collection because of that fact. At first, Lisa didn't even want to make what she's perhaps most known for, unicorns. Lisa stated that the artist in me said no, but she thought, wait a minute, this is commercial art. Let's do what's going to sell. After all, even artists have to eat, right? So Lisa made her own jewelry line called Sticky Fingers. She bought plastic fruit, glue guns, and it sold incredibly well. And even in these very early days, art thieves were still around. Lisa said, one of the first things I made was a little box we called an all-in-one. It had a painting of a teddy bear on the front and the eyes were star earrings. You opened up the box, took out the earrings, the lid was a pin, and then the inside of the box was a necklace. That took off like wildfire. Of course, I got knocked off. This was around the time I met a guy that said to me, quote, anything you can draw, I can have made for you in the Orient, end quote. That's when we started doing buttons. In the early days, I was drawn to Felix the Cat and Betty Boop. So I asked the licensing from King Feature for Felix, Betty Boop, Mighty Mouse, and Popeye. So along with my stuff, I had some licenses. We used to do that for buttons and all of a sudden Spencer's Gifts said to me, if you can turn those buttons into stickers, I'll give you a million dollar order. This was around 1982 and I'm only 28 years old. I'm a kid. A million dollar order seemed like 50 million to me. From here is when Lisa Frank truly took off. Lisa was hugely affected by pop art and she developed her own style. From stickers, she went to school supplies, stationery, her entire line expanded. Art museums, magazines, zoos, and listening to kids all gave Lisa inspiration. 
all while her husband, James Green, handled the business side of things, though we'll get to him in a little bit. In those days, it was nothing but blue skies ahead for the company. Sure, they had their challenges when stickers fell out of favor in the 80s and the company had to adapt, but overall, their merchandise did incredibly well. One former head designer, Rondi Coots, said she loved working there and Lisa was an absolute ball of energy. The work was both exciting and exhausting as Rondi was there in the golden years from 1987 to 2002. The workplace was challenging, but she had a hand in iconic characters like Panda Painter and Punk Poodle. The company grossed $60 million a year during its peak in the late 90s. Shareholder distributions to Lisa Frank and then husband James Green totaled more than $100 million between 1995 and 2005 alone. There was a Lisa Frank fan club. They began pushing for their clothing and backpacks to appear in television shows and movies. So what happened? 90s fads die, yes. But is this what happened to Lisa Frank? Did the company die away with Furbies, Limited 2, and Tamagotchis? Though Tamagotchis have apparently tried to make a comeback in recent years, so fuck yeah. Well, Lisa Frank didn't suffer the same fate. I'm not saying that new fads played no role in this, but it was by no means the only reason that Lisa Frank's colors started to fade. Jacob, an illustrator who worked at Lisa Frank for four years stated, they could have caught up with the hipster market, but in order for a company to really turn a corner in these kinds of things, they need compassionate leadership and people who appreciate and can nurture talent. They didn't have either of those. It was the silliest setup I've ever seen, he added. Of course, from the outside, it's colorful. You've got the rainbow, the stars, the hearts on the building, the statue of the panda, but inside was like an abusive alcoholic home. And yikes, those are some very big accusations to say the least. So let's get into that. Just what the hell happened to Lisa Frank's workplace? Well, the problem wasn't business, it was personal. Lisa Frank is notorious in Tucson where it's based as the world's shittiest employer, said Caroline, who considered applying for one of the many jobs at the company she saw advertised when moving to Tucson in 2001, but decided against it after speaking with locals. Every single person I talked to advised me to avoid Lisa Frank at all costs, she said. I didn't know a single person who had not heard horror stories about the work environment there. I don't know if it's possible to really communicate how bad their reputation was in town, Caroline stressed before adding, every person who ever worked there seemed to have a case of PTSD from it. Rainbow Gulag is a really apt description. It was a revolving door, Jacob said of the company's turnover. In the four years that he was employed at the 40-person creative department, he estimates that group may have changed over at least two or three times. It was just unbelievable. One year, almost a third of the entire staff turned over. When asked what the root of the problem was at LFI, Lisa Frank Incorporated, former employees, some of whom spoke directly at Jezebel, while others are on record in court documents, all had the same answer. LFI CEO, James Green. Green began working at LFI in 1982 as the company's first in-house illustrator and designer. Shortly after beginning a romantic relationship with Frank sometime in late 1983 or early 1984, Green began to move up the corporate ladder. He became an officer of the business in 1988 and was named president and CEO in December, 1992. Green and Frank married in October 22, 1994 in what was described as an extravagant affair. Their first child was born the following July when Frank was 41. It was then at the height of her product's popularity that Frank relinquished day-to-day management duties to Green in order to focus on raising her children. Shortly after each of her sons were born, Frank, who had once been the sole shareholder in her company, made gifts of her stock to Green in what would amount to 49% of the shareholdings in LFI. 
And honestly, I feel a little bit bad for Lisa here. I'm not gonna say she was perfect. I don't know everything that went on behind closed doors. After all, it's been said that a lot of bad publicity stemmed from a series of lawsuits with local contractors and builders that said they weren't paid for about $4 million worth of work on the corporate headquarters. However, from the sounds of it, Lisa just trusted her husband to handle the day-to-day of the company she built from the ground up. Who wouldn't, right? If you can't trust your partner to do that, then who can you trust? And it's not as if Green didn't have experience with the company. He was their very first in-house designer and illustrator. He was the father of their children. Lisa thought that after two decades of hard work and building this company, she may be able to step back a bit and focus on her kids. Yet Green wasn't someone she could trust. He's been accused of having drug problems as well as having a relationship with the company VP, Rhonda Rowlett, behind Lisa's back. Some employees referred to Rowlett as Green's fuck buddy and even spotted James and Rhonda at a Lisa Frank retail store alone in 2005. They seemed caught off guard to be seen by workers they knew and neither James nor Rhonda were with their partners on that July 2005 weekend. Considering that James Green does work with Rhonda to this day for his own brand, I'd say that the employees weren't far off the mark here. Plus calling himself the creator of the famed Lisa Frank brand on his page is a little bit bold considering he looks like he was responsible for the downfall, not the creation. James wasn't just accused of cheating, but he was the reason the employees were leaving too. The abusive workplace was his doing. And again, don't get me wrong, Lisa wasn't perfect. She was even fined by the FTC, $30,000 for asking young visitors for personal information on their website. But I just can't bring myself to blame her for trusting her husband. By all means, Green should have been that trustworthy person. So let's get into exactly what he was doing and what the employees said was going on via court documents. Lisa Frank filed for divorce from Green around the same time she filed a lawsuit for his actions at LFI. Here are just a few affidavits from that lawsuit so we can get a better feel for what happened during some of those peak years. One from Jeffrey L. Buchanan states, I have known Lisa Frank both personally and professionally for more than 20 years. Two Target buyers first introduced me to her. At that time, she had been selling at Target stores quite successfully and was well-regarded there for her creativity and very sellable product. She was the driving force behind the product and the charismatic force behind her brand. During the early 1990s, Lisa asked my firm to represent her at Target. Our business with LFI grew from 3.5 million to almost $10 million over the next several years. James kept Lisa further away from the customers. The product continued to be great, but LFI's relationship with Target had become more and more adversarial. James would be argumentative with my buyers and the relationship sources. Rather than damage our relationship any further with Target, we were forced to terminate our contract with LFI. I kept in touch with Lisa over the intervening years. 18 months ago, Lisa called me to see if we would consider working with her again. So I agreed under one condition, that James Green would not be involved. I knew we could not be successful if he was involved. James and Rhonda are a toxic presence at LFI. The company will flourish without their involvement and fail if they stay. Now, I'm not saying that this definitively proves everything was Green's fault, because again, fads come and go. It makes sense that the product may be less popular after it's had its time in the limelight, but his argumentative nature, ruining a relationship with a store's largest target, like, yeah, that's a bit messed up. Whether it's newer workers like Lisa Di Cristofaro, who only worked there about six or seven months before testifying to the significant turnover and the amount of buyers that specifically asked not to work with James or Rhonda to older employees. The sheer number of people that spoke out against John is pretty staggering. This isn't just a couple people that may have had some kind of vendetta against management. The numbers, specifically the turnover, doesn't lie. 
Just in the six months that Di Cristofaro worked at Lisa Frank before the court case, 23% of the company quit and the sales support staff turned over completely. All of this, she claims, was because of the environment created by Rhonda and James. He's even been accused of illegally recording phone calls too. De Cristoforo stated, he questioned my ability to my rep. My health benefits were canceled. Conversations on the office lines with my counterparts were recorded and played by Rhonda later in her office. It is against mass state laws to record conversations without advising the participant at the onset of the call. Tucson is located in Arizona, but it seems like she wasn't always in that office. So that's why she references the two-party consent law in Massachusetts. According to the law in Arizona where HQ is located, if you operate in Arizona, you may record a conversation or phone call if you are a party to the conversation or you get permission from one party to the conversation in advance. That said, if you intend to record conversations involving people located in more than one state, you should abide by the recording law of the most restrictive state involved or play it safe and get consent of all parties. Point is, whether or not it's legal to record a phone conversation, you really should be getting someone's permission anyway. The fact that Green did this is pretty scummy. I honestly don't care too much about the testimony that says how successful this company would be if only Lisa were at the helm. I don't want to speculate if that could be true or not. After all, Lisa Frank did build LFI from the ground up, but she's had a few controversies in recent years that we'll get into in a bit. So, you know, who knows, right? But at the very least, if mistakes and company fumbles happened, it shouldn't be because her husband was treating people and buyers like garbage. Another testimony from Betty Hack stated, I have been employed by Lisa Frank Inc. since October 1st, 1998. My current job title is General Manager Hong Kong. For the most part, I have enjoyed a good working relationship with all parties involved in this case. Therefore, my decision to come forth has not come lightly. I recently witnessed firsthand some of the destructive actions that are taking place at LFI, mostly contributed by the actions of James Green and Rhonda Rowlett, but also with the help of Julie Dawson. Emails are being monitored and phone calls are being bugged, so they are aware when anyone has communicated with Lisa. I received a call from Rhonda one evening stating that Lisa was going to call a board meeting and terminate James and take over the company herself. She stated the purpose of doing so was so she could run the business down to a level where she would not have to pay James much for his 49%. Rhonda stated that she would pay him almost nothing for his shares and then sell the company so she could take all of the profits herself. I went to Rhonda to discuss the situation. She stated, I couldn't trust Lisa. I told Rhonda that I was no longer receiving support or feedback from James. Rhonda stated that it was because Lisa was telling everyone not to work with James and I told her that was not true. Rhonda stated that it was also me who wasn't communicating with James and he was very upset with me after I sent him an email to him and Lisa requesting they keep their personal problems and differences away from the business relationship and to decide who was going to do what and not ask any of us to deviate from that. They pressured Betty to resign. Rhonda and this other worker, Julie Dawson, both insisted Betty told Lisa that she was leaving the company because she didn't wanna work with Lisa anymore. But Betty had a contract. Rhonda suggesting she or anyone else resign is completely irresponsible. Hell, even Rhonda's been on the receiving end of James's abuse. Although, you know, Betty also states that she'd heard her screaming at him, calling her fat and stupid from his office. There's far more testimony against James after this. Some come from Mary Huffman who saw James physically push an attorney from his home. Carol Kern said the verbal abuse was constant. Rhonda made people feel guilty if they couldn't stay late or work on a weekend. She told people don't open their big fat mouth and created a feeling of paranoia in the office. The list goes on and on. To say this was a toxic work environment would be an understatement. This wasn't one or two mistakes, but a pattern of behavior and horrible treatment. 
When this lawsuit finally ended and the dust settled, James Green was seen for the person he really is and was required to sell his shares back to Lisa Frank. Green made every step of the way difficult. When he was told to give back computers and files, he copied them over and the court found evidence that he was violating their terms. One source says, the court found that Green and not counsel was personally culpable and willful and repeated violations of the court's orders, including but not limited to the removal and retention of hardware, software, computer programs, intellectual and proprietary LFI property, artwork and graphics in deliberate violation of the court's orders commenting that it had considered an array of sanctions, including the imposition of attorney's fees and even incarceration. The court concluded that such sanctions have failed to impress Mr. Green in the past. It's bad enough that he turned Lisa Frank's company into a hellish place to work, but this seems extensive and painful to say the least. But hey, at least Lisa Frank got control of her company once again, even if it took such a long time. According to Jezebel, one month after filing a civil suit to force Green to attend the annual two-person shareholder meeting so she could elect a new board of directors and an application for a temporary restraining order against Green to keep him away from the business and stop him from harassing employees, blocking purchase orders, and removing assets from the company, Frank won the first battle in what would be a long, drawn-out, dirty war. She arrived at the company's headquarters with the police who escorted Green, Rallette, and Rallette's secretary from the building. Lisa Frank spent the latter half of the 2000s mired in litigation, mostly with Green and Rowlett. There was the initial lawsuit in 2005, a counterclaim in 2005, then Rhonda Rowlett sued Lisa Frank in 2006. Then there was a third party counterclaim again later in 2006. And when James sued Lisa Frank again in 2006 to repay a loan for a private jet. When that didn't go through, he sued in 2008 for $2.2 million, which he claimed was his share of the sale of the jet. Then, at least at that time in 2008, he also tried to take back Lisa Frank HQ on the grounds that LFI violated its lease. Rowlett's husband even tried to sue Lisa Frank, but that was dismissed. Green tried to have LFI evicted from its headquarters as he owned Green Bean Investments, the owner of the property. This was unsuccessful and that took place in 2009. Yet as recently as January, 2013, Lisa Frank and Green are still bickering within the legal system. Talk about a messy fucking divorce, like holy shit, but What happened after all this nonsense? Has Lisa Frank made a comeback? Well, sort of. And it's time to take just a quick break to pay some bills and thank today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Now, ExpressVPN is a company that gives you a VPN or a virtual private network. And what does that do exactly? Well, a VPN hides your location so that targeted ads, companies that are trying to track you for usually ads are just kind of to take a hold of your information. They have a little bit more of a difficult time trying to find you. And that's awesome because you can still surf the web, enjoy the things you like doing online, all while protecting yourself from people who are trying to purchase information about your spending habits. But what's also great is ExpressVPN also allows you to unlock different types of shows, documentaries, and movies that are otherwise not available to specifically you and your country. Did you ever wanna weeb out and have a moment where you watch some anime or shenanigans on Netflix that you can't access on American or UK Netflix? Well, now you can with ExpressVPN. If you wanna get started today, make sure you go to expressvpn.com casket. Don't forget to use my link and they're gonna give you an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com casket. Make sure to check it out and make sure you're getting your full viewing experience online. Thank you ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode. 
Before we talk about what happened to Lisa, I want to talk just a bit more about what happened to James, mostly because it's so terrible, it's hilarious. Well, in addition to that website I mentioned James running earlier, he also runs an even cringier design website called jameschristianman.com. I'm not trying to like hate on religious clothing or anything, like if you wanna wear it, that's cool, but this is objectively bad stuff here. He says he's been inspired to run a foundation that cares for sick and orphan children, which sure, that is that is great. But he's also selling these overly washed acid looking shirts for anywhere between 30 to $120. And I wish I was joking, but oh wait, I'm sorry, excuse me. I haven't gone through the website far enough. There's also one for $195. Can someone tell me if I have lost my fucking mind? Now, for a second, I thought it was maybe $19.95 and I was reading it wrong, but no, it's literally almost 200 whole dollars for an acid washed shirt. I just, I can't. I mean, hey, maybe if some of this money went to a charity, like that would be cool, that would be one thing, but there's nothing on the page that indicates that. Like, shouldn't it be there, you know, if that's what you're doing or saying like a certain percent of these sales goes toward a charity? Like, I I don't know, but it, it doesn't exist is the point. They also don't have a good score on Charity Navigator, maybe because they aren't big enough, which is probably a good thing. I hope they stay so small so they minimize the amount of people that are involved with James. Rhonda also works there as well, by the way. She's vice president at Salvation LLC, the name that they operate under. Also, if you know his website design is seriously stuck in the early 2000s, then I wouldn't really trust James with a shirt either. For a design company, they've got such garbage and difficult navigating website that it just, this is just not a good look. Like the fall is real here. Now, back to Lisa Frank. There has been some criticism in 2010 about the crazy standards of beauty Lisa Frank put on kids, but I'm not so sure that that one is justified. I just don't think that with their absolutely gigantic heads and eyes and the size of their torso, anyone could really aim for the standard of beauty. To me, it just looks like a style as opposed to a beauty standard. I get why people have this issue in modern day Instagram and all, but with the Lisa Frank characters, it just doesn't really fall in that same category for me. They were never meant to be based in reality. You know what I mean? Like maybe you disagree with me and that's totally fine, though I'm not sure criticizing 90s cartoon figures really does much for us to move forward. As for the more legitimate criticism, there's one issue that's got a lot of attention that I wanted to talk about before I address much else, and that's the Lisa Frank Hotel. A young woman named Amina Mucciolo designed a gorgeous, unique rainbow apartment. She was renting it, but made it her own. It was a very Lisa Frank-esque with bright colors throughout the kitchen, living room, bedroom, you name it. Although it's not my style personally, it doesn't take more than a glance to see how much effort she put into this place. In 2018, Lisa Frank or whoever runs the Instagram account started reaching out to me, the designer recalls. This was shortly after Cloudland had gone viral online, amping up Mucciolino's own internet presence. The Lisa Frank account sent her several DMs, commented on posts of the apartment and even shared some of her work in posts that have since been deleted. Lisa Frank was aware of her home, they knew. Her home had gone absolutely fucking viral. NBC Today's show aired a segment on it. It was on the cover of Good Homes and Ikea Family. Metro called it an Instagram dream come true and Teen Vogue called it a technicolor paradise. So this wasn't some random person's apartment, but it was famous and deservedly so. Again, so much work went into designing this place and it's really, really cool. Fast forward to October, 2019. Hotels.com and Lisa Frank launched their imaginatively titled collaboration, the Hotels.com Lisa Frank Flat. 
a two-week pop-up room inside a short-term rental unit in Los Angeles. It sold out in an hour. As soon as the collaboration was announced by Lisa Frank in an Instagram post, comparisons between the suite and Cloudland were drawn to Mucciolo's fans. This looks like your place, commented one Instagrammer. I think I know where they got this kitchen inspo from, commented another. And here's what just kind of, I don't know, angers me just just a little bit. Lisa Frank is known for the color, the glitter, the sparkers, the original characters. So I can't blame them if their pop-up room had colors in it, obviously. However, the setup, the layout, and the timing, none of that feels coincidental. You'd think that Lisa Frank would like, you know, maybe take on Mucciolo as a designer. Hell, if I was in Lisa Frank's shoes, I would have reached out and asked if she'd like to design the pop-up rooms instead of just steal the idea from her. And when you compare the two flats side by side, they are eerily similar. It, it, it's really, really strange. Like it's, it's hard to say you did not, you know, know, understand, like, copy, whatever the other design. Yet frustratingly enough, it gets worse. Not only does Mucciolo accuse Lisa Frank at Hotels.com of stealing her designs, but also links them to her eviction from Cloudland. Mucciolo says her landlord wanted her out by October, just in time for the opening of the Lisa Frank flat. One of Hotel.com's partners, Barsala, owns the suite and operates several units in Mucciolo's building, which happened to be next door. Mucciolo believes that her landlord saw the success of the Lisa Frank flat and wants to capitalize on Mucciolo's iconic rainbow interior design. And the only way to do that is to oust Mucciolo. It's very obvious that they are trying to get rid of us so they can use the space in the same way. They clearly see the value in colorful design, said Mucciolo in a tweet. Now she was evicted. So that apartment that she poured her heart and soul into could be capitalized on. She made an entire video on it going in so much more detail back in October, 2019. And if you ever wanna check it out, her YouTube channel is called Tassel Fairy, just as one word. Thankfully, she was able to reach a GoFundMe goal for legal defense and to find a new place to live, but I would be so devastated if I was in her position. Like, just imagine that you design an apartment so amazing, so viral and gorgeous that your landlord kicks you out so they can capitalize on your design. The landlord didn't even evict her properly. According to Mucciolo's GoFundMe, he refused to accept their rent payment and seemed determined to get rid of them before October. Then sure enough, at the start of October, 2019, she learned that Lisa Frank apartment was in her rental development. So no, it's not as if Lisa Frank's team were inspired by her layout. They were in the same damn building, purposely seeking out her setup. There's far, far too many similarities for this to be a coincidence. And it makes me so upset to see LFI take advantage of a smaller designer. Lisa Frank herself knows what it's like to be taken advantage of. So why would she do that to someone else? And again, I'm sure they did have to pay someone to put their Cloudland ripoff together. Why not just hire the original person to do it? Not only does she have the experience, but they could have made such a great team. If they'd already been talking together, then Mucciolo probably would have been happy to accept. I don't wanna speak for her or anything, but it most certainly seems that way. I think what makes me especially upset about this too is just Lisa Frank's attitude when they get ripped off. In 2018, Canada-based Orb Factory was very clearly ripping off their aesthetic. I mean, if you look at an image of two tigers that they both designed, it's really not that hard to tell. Lisa Frank has an extremely distinct style. And even though I'm not sure that the unicorn design pictured is a ripoff, there's absolutely an argument to be made about the tiger that was shown too. Lisa testified to how shocked and upset she was and insisted that she wasn't inspired by other artists, only subconsciously inspired by the pop art movement. Really Lisa, so you and your designers weren't inspired by Mucciolo at all? Anyway, the entire lawsuit has been settled confidentially anyway, so I doubt we'll know what actually happened there. As for what Lisa Frank has been up to now, aside from this, her company mostly earns money now from the nostalgia factor. 
There was a mini documentary about her in 2012 from Urban Outfitters, seeing as they've been carrying her products at that time. 90s nostalgia is real. I think long Furbies are some of my favorite 90s nostalgia brought back to life if I'd had to choose. Urban Outfitters did pretty well with selling limited edition vintage Lisa Frank items and LFI earned about 2.3 million annual revenue in 2012. They're still located in a 320,000 square foot building in Tucson, though the number of employees has dwindled from 500 at its peak to just six. There was a Lisa Frank nail trend not too long ago and Lisa Frank stickers were even featured on a molded corset on a runway. Lisa herself is worth about $200 million as of 2019. And from 1979 to 2005, the company earned a billion dollars in profit. So, hey, even though LFI might be considered dead nowadays, it's not like Lisa's hurting. She also collaborated with Reebok and Morphe very recently too. I don't know much about Reebok, but I've done a video on Morphe before and they're pretty shady themselves. Not as shady as other things we've seen here on the channel, but still pretty shady. Can't say I'd personally approve of a business partnership with them though. Lisa herself has also gone as far to say that she understood Michael Jackson's life under paparazzi scrutiny, which is, I don't know, it's a Gawker article. So take that as you want, but I don't give it much value. Like I get it, she was big, but comparing herself to Michael Jackson is a bit extreme. She said questionable things, comparing her name to his and saying that putting Betty Boop on a unicorn was groundbreaking. She apparently lamented that the normal working woman could only afford to buy clothes in black because only the luxury label Misani is doing color. I'm pretty sure there's colorful clothing from cheap outlets too, but okay. She even named her children after her rainbow tiger and leopard club characters, Forrest and Hunter. But none of what she said has been racist or homophobic or transphobic or incredibly worrying. It's just a bit cringy at best. All in all, I personally feel like any money Lisa Frank makes now is off the nostalgia factor. That's not to say that's inherently a bad thing. And I do think what her ex-husband did is absolutely terrible and destroyed the company's true potential. But after Lisa Frank's own actions, especially when it came to the hotel, I'm not that eager for a comeback anyway. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed taking a look at the history, the then and now of Lisa Frank, and hopefully you learned something from it as well. If you did, make sure to like, subscribe, or follow this wherever you're listening so that you always stay up to date on the latest episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.